Well, as you're being seated, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. You notice in our scripture reading this morning, even as where Joey was reading in Psalm 32, where he said, when I kept my sin silent and I did not call out to God for the repentance and forgiveness, that even my bones waxed old within me. I want you to recognize something unique about the expression that is used by David in this particular psalm. It is a whole person effect when you conceal sin. And by whole person, I mean there is something about you, the way God's designed you, the way he's created you. You are material and immaterial. You are body and you are spirit. And those things, those two essence are joined together in such a way that even when forgiveness is lacking, your body feels the weight of the sin and conviction and things that were concealed within you. And in a sense, all of you could even recognize that weight, that nasty feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know you're convicted about something that you've done wrong and violated against God. And he is drawing you even in your whole person, body and spirit to reconcile with him. You know what's remarkable about that? Is when you call out and you confess and you ask for forgiveness, that whole person healing also exists with you as well. That nasty feeling in their stomach of conviction and, and the need for forgiveness, it goes away because now you are restored. David revels in this reality in his life. And as we walk through the series on forgiveness, we ought to as well. In order to help us and, and extend our thoughts on this series of forgiveness even further, uh, there was a few different books that uh, I had purchased for our church library on the subject of forgiveness that is showcased out over by the library, and you can check those out. There are a couple of really good resources that it, as you think and begin to meditate on this perspective of God's forgiveness in the Bible, these will be good resources uh, for you and I uh, to take hold of. I love uh, what C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, concerning this particular topic. He, he made this particular remark. If I can get my clicker working, here we go. Uh, he made this particular statement. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely word until they have something to forgive. I thought, how fitting in reality, because we revel in the, or in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, but the moment that all of a sudden someone offends us, someone sins against us, and we now have to choose to be that kind of forgiving person, now something real is at stake if I don't participate in being a person of mercy the way mercy has been shown to me. Now remember our perspective that we're, we're coming back to in part two this Sunday is this, is this reality of forgiveness, that judicial forgiveness is the model for relational forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is the model for relational forgiveness. And one of the things that we've seen is we are building a the, not only a theology of forgiveness from the Bible, and we walked through, and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to that message, but the Bible, all from beginning to end, is replete with the need for people to be forgiven. From Genesis to Revelation, there is a need that only a single person can provide, and his name is Jesus. And he is the one who will help us. 
Well, we're also not only just building a theology of forgiveness, but we're trying to understand what would a biblical definition of forgiveness look like? Well, here was one of the elements that we mentioned last week that is critical for us as we begin to piece together what forgiveness actually is. Well, we know this from Matthew chapter 18, that the reality is, is we look at a verse like this, where it says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, and we know the response. And Jesus said, no, not this many, but as far as 77 times, or 70 times seven. But the idea was this perspective of limitless. And we made this comment last week, that forgiveness is limitless because mercy is bottomless. Which means you and I are called to have a bottomless perspective of mercy towards one another in the Christian community. Forgiveness, in building a definition, one part of it is forgiveness must take place and be available anytime it's necessary. It's limitless. But it doesn't just stop there. Did you notice this in Psalm chapter 32 that was read this morning? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When we are begin to talking about the subject of forgiveness, we're talking about the issue of sin. You notice in the psalm and all throughout these other psalms that you will read, if you were to go to the psalms or Old Testament or New Testament, you'll notice this word that keeps coming up when forgiveness is needed. Forgiveness is needed because sin is present. When forgiveness happens, it's because someone violated something that God said they should do and are now functioning outside the very parameters of God's loving boundaries in which would be dangerous for their whole person. And if we understand that, now we begin to extend in our part two this morning a few other dimensions of this, of this definition of forgiveness, not only that it's limitless, not only that when forgiveness is there, it's because sin is present. But now as we turn this morning and walk through the parable of the unforgiving servant, we're gonna add another dimension in Matthew chapter 18 that is a reality to this text and extends this, this, this helpful uh, scenario so that we can see forgiveness even more clearly. Notice even Peter as he asked this question, how many times should my brother or sister sin against me? The emphasis is sin, not preference. Don't go around and say, because you don't believe the way I believe, then you, offer, you need to ask forgiveness from me for not functioning according to my principles. Do you, can you imagine what kind of chaotic community would ensue if everyone was saying, you violated my preferences? Because people violate people's preferences all the time. And my children violate my preferences. My wife violates my preferences. If everyone would just function by each other's preferences, what's the problem with that? Is you don't know them all. And all of a sudden you violated something because it's not clear, it's just something someone enjoys, but sin is something very different. Sin is something very concrete. Sin is something God describes, not something man gets to decide what is and what isn't. It's not enough for us to say, well, you sinned, you sinned against me. Well, how do you see that? Well, because I said so. No, God says you either violated clear teaching or you didn't. 
which forces a believer when they repent to be very thoughtful about why they're going to the mercies to the to the mercies of God to receive something that could only come from God because you violated not another human standard but God the creator of the universe's standard and when you and I by the way step outside those boundaries on any of the emphases God designs for us to live by you should experience a level of conviction you should know to yourself that forgiveness is available, but it means you have to call your sin what it is. You can't come on your terms. You must come on his terms. You don't get to say, well, I'll offer this one. Could you imagine how that would work in the Old Testament sacrificial system if all of a sudden someone's like, I don't want to do a dove today. I just thought I'd bring a sparrow. No, the priest would turn them away and say, if you can't get the very things that God has called you to do right, then don't come thinking you can worship him in, the, in, in any way that you choose. See, that's the challenge for us when we think about forgiveness. We can't come without a heart that is desirous to be restored from the very mercies of God, which means we must be a person who is able to humble ourselves and see ourselves clearly and to look into the mirror of the scripture. This is the way James describes it. And the ladies are gonna cover this, so go sign up. You look into the perfect law of liberty, the mirror of the scripture, and you cannot, you should not go away and forget what you've seen. You're supposed to see it and see the blemishes of your sin and then run to the mercy seat. Notice the mercies of God. There's a reason why the Ark of the Covenant was also often described as the mercy seat. The place where offerings of forgiveness took place. Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at our parable this morning. It's only fitting. Uh, I did all this because we knew we were going to study parables, of course, right? In small group coming up. But parables are just those earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And here's the one that we find in Matthew 18, extending this text. It says, then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, he... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay, I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Have patience. Uh, he began to choke him. And he's saying, pay what you owe. And so his servant fell down and he pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that, all that, were, uh, all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also, now here is the punchline, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here, tucked away in this gospel is one of the most remarkable and only moments where this particular parable is found in all of the gospels. Other parables on the teachings of forgiveness, uh, I'll mention a couple and how they connect as we go through today. But this teaching tucked away in the gospel of Matthew helps us understand that the reality of forgiveness is at the very heart of God's incredible redemptive plan for the life of his people. Do you notice this as we walk through, notice these parts, and all of a sudden Jesus began to speak to, to the people in parables, and he gave these stories, and those who were interested in finding out what these stories actually meant would come to Jesus and would find out. And he says, there's something about the kingdom of heaven that he's trying to teach them. Because all throughout Matthew, do you notice this phrase when you read the book of Matthew? Jesus is coming, and he says these things. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These Jewish communities had long awaited the coming king and a restoration of Israel. They had long waited for the one that would be the Messiah who would come and he would come and he would, he would rule and reign. Except here was the challenge, is that in their desire for him to rule and reign and all this fixation about having been under Roman oppression, they, were, they missed this one element that the suffering Messiah, the Messiah would come, but he would come to suffer to begin with. He would suffer for the sins of the people, for the sins of the world. He would take them all on his back and they missed it. All because they were so fixated on the kingdom. And Jesus was trying to help them understand that the kingdom of God and kingdom people, kingdom citizens, ought to be marked by something like God is marked by mercy. And so he gives this parable to help extend Peter's, a response to Peter's question and this king, of course, we recognize that Jesus is putting a play in the parable on the reality that this king, all of a sudden, who had, I mean, why would he have to come back and settle accounts if he didn't go away? The reality in the parable is that he's concealing and revealing various things. He's concealing that he's going to die, he's going to the cross, and he's going to be gone for a while. And when he comes back in this parable, he's settling accounts, and he is now back. And when this account took place, do you notice, he's, he says, this servant, there was this judgment, that, this, this reckoning of what was going on in the life of his servants, and all of a sudden the king came back and he wished to settle accounts. And there was this one servant that was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It's really difficult sometimes to understand all this because you didn't go to the bank this last week and say, I'd like to cash in about 100 talents. Uh, we function differently in our numeric system. But back in this particular time period, Jesus is giving a story where he's describing one talent, some kind of an understanding, most theologians understand this, to equal some level of one talent equaling a level of 20 years wages. So when he's saying he brought and he said he owed him 10,000 talents, 
What he's really trying to get at here in the whole expression is to say he owed him a lifetime, uh, multiple lifetimes of debts in which he could never potentially repay because he would die before he, he would never be able to start multiple lifetimes in order to actually receive the forgiveness. His debt had mounted to such a degree. The emphasis, don't get caught up in the parable of trying to think, okay, well, how did he amount to this debt? Was he some kind of a crooked dealer and he was stealing money from behind the scenes? We don't know. What we do know that the emphasis of the parable is this. He had a great sum of debt that was not able to be ever repaid given his entire lifetime. Now, when the servant goes before his master and realizes the extent to which he owed, and he knew, and he said, and since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Do you notice this? There's the consequences that Jesus says there were for this individual who had this large, irrepayable debt. In fact, the story that's told by Jesus in the parable, he's saying the master understood that when he brought this amount of sum of debt that could not be repaid, it was impossible for this servant to somehow fulfill his, neg his, his responsibilities to ever repay that particular amount. Both the master knew it and the servant knew it. And both of them stood at a crossroads of recognizing you can't pay and there's never a possibility to pay, and I am never gonna get anything out of you. So anything that I do, the master's thinking, in this scenario, is gonna have to be all about mercy. Because there's no possible way you could do anything to reconcile the debt that you have accrued against me. And the servant recognized it. Dare I say that this is the moment in somebody's life who recognizes that their irrepayable debt of sin that goes so deep to the, to, the, to the very corners of every reservoir of your heart, that you were born in sin, that you and I have a sin problem and we cannot repay it, that Jesus is trying to help us understand there's something judicially going on, a payment, a legal payment that must be made and because real sin has occurred in a violation of God's justice and God's righteous standards. When that heaviness fell upon that servant, and all of a sudden, could you imagine the servant standing before the master and the master's quoting off to the consequences of, of, of his debt that had been accrued, and he said, well, you're gonna have to sell his wife, and you're gonna have to sell his kids, and you're gonna have to sell everything he has, and even though I'm not gonna get the full repayment back, uh, we're, we're gonna get... I'm gonna get something out of this. And the, the soul of the servant who recognized this irrepayable debt was all of a sudden impacting all these people who were around him. And all of his life he would live in, in, in chains to his, own, to his own unwillingness and knowing that he could never repay this debt. He falls down on his face in verse 26. He fell on his knees and he's just imploring and he's pleading with him. In the text, he gives this verbal language that you just have somebody who has just dropped to their knees and he's just begging the master, please don't sell my family. Please don't sell my children. Please don't let me go into debt. Please, we'll never see freedom again. 
And he's pleading, and this idea in the verbal expression is over and over and over and over and over and over. His repetition displays a sense of urgency and seriousness about his sin. And he says to the master, please have patience with me. I will repay everything. I mean, look, his, look at his short-sightedness. Like, just give me some time. Lifetimes? The master sees this pleading individual, and there's nothing he can do. Even though he has a desire in his heart, a, a desire to be patient, at least what it seems like, he wants patience and he'll repay his debt. The master looks at his condition and says, there's no possible way for you to pay this. If you went to the bank, your account says zero. There's nothing. And the master in his kindness speaks to him. And out of this, it says this remarkable statement that I don't want you to skip by. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Believers, the Father in heaven through the work of the Son, based upon our pleading for repentance and recognizing that we owe him an irrepayable debt that would, would never be able to be paid, looks at the calling of the person who pleads with him for forgiveness of their sin, and he has pity and compassion. Merciful people are filled with compassion for others. This is why Jesus, when he would go throughout all the crowds and minister all throughout the early portions of his ministry in Jerusalem and in Judea and all of these areas and where all, all the up, up the areas by the Sea of Galilee and people heard him and he would go through these scenarios and it's marked by these statements where the crowds would follow him and all of a sudden Jesus would be trying to get to a mountain to pray and he looks back as if, if people, he says, with, with, with sheep with no shepherd and it looks and he says, and I have, and he had compassion on them. Jesus' mercy was so bottomlessly infinite that he could not help looking at the masses of people who would die and go to hell for eternity unless he would be willing to go to the cross to save them. His heart was so moved for this servant. His desire is so pure. Notice what he did. Out of this mercy and compassion, it, he says he released him. This idea is the, the aspect that we understand that when a person stands before a judge, if all of a sudden you were guilty before the righteous king of heaven and there's no way that, that you could not be, there was, were standing before God, you could say, oh, I'm gonna be found not guilty. You are standing before the righteous judge of the, of the world and you know that you're guilty and he passes down the sentence and he says, you're free. That's what happens when you repent of your sins. You call out to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and he alone can save you. 
See, forgiveness is so at the heart of the redemptive plan of God that people have to model this aspect of God's mercy by being willing to forgive. This idea of releasing, acquitting someone, pardoning them, setting them free. And this, the reality is what happened is because the servant could not pay his debt, the master himself would absorb the debt. Knowing there was real offenses, he took it upon himself of all the wrong that was done and he absorbed the offense and treated the person as if it never took place. He never looked at them again. He would never look at them again and say, you know what, do you remember? (laughs) He said, guess what? I release you. This is justification. This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is is available to all who call on Jesus Christ to forgiveness of sins. And he will have pity and compassion and show you mercy. You have friends, family members, co-workers who don't know about the mercies of God. You are an ambassador Christian of the very mercies of God sent as agents of reconciliation out to amongst the people in which God so dearly loved enough to send his own son. Make no mistake, forgiveness can only and ever come from Jesus alone. Forgiveness does not come from the church. So often in Christian history, a a departure from a perspective that somehow people's relationship with God is bound by what the church says, which is so often in Reformation history to understand that people like Martin Luther and William Tyndale and all these great reformers of old would go about saying things like, no, it's not found in the church. They don't hold sway over your soul. Jesus alone paid the debt for your sin. No body of people could ever do that to you or for you. He alone forgave. That's why when we talk about salvation and this creedal statement of the Reformation, that it's in, it's in faith alone, in Christ alone, in the scripture alone. See, so many people live thinking that they can be forgiven just because they think, well, I go to church, I'm a fairly decent person, or you know what, I go to church, and you know what, maybe I'll get sent to purgatory, and this whole reality of all of a sudden, they'll spend a lifetime purging, that's the whole idea of purgatory, by the way, is that you'll spend an indefinite amount of time purging the rest of the sin from your life so that you get at one point... Be freed from enough sin where you could enter into the righteous presence of the living king. Believers, there is nothing you and I could ever do to afford ourselves the gift of salvation. All he calls you to do is humble yourself and repent of your sin. And he will do all the rest. The spirit will indwell you You will be satisfied in him. You will trust in the glorious riches of his grace. See, the power of a parable like this is found in the reality that it forces us to think about our justification. 
What did it take for you and I to be allowed in the presence of a living God who is completely holy? You know what it took? It took a payment. It took a blood payment. It took a pure payment. It took the righteous lamb of God in the person of Jesus Christ so that John the Baptist would look at his followers and look at them and say, look, there goes the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Forgiveness is a critical aspect of every individual's life because on the other side of repentance, when you have called out to God and he has forgiven you, do you notice this? If you're, if you're living your life and understanding this appreciation, that there's just something about God's mercy and forgiveness that it just doesn't wear off. Whenever you think about it, you think, oh, he didn't, he should have done that. He shouldn't have paid for my debt, but he did because he loves you. And if you're here this morning and you have this unpayable debt, he is speaking to you. If you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, it is, it is a call to you that the Spirit of God is trying to draw you to a saving understanding of faith in Jesus Christ through repentance. And you know what? All you have to do is recognize that you're a sinner and say, Father, there's no way I could pay this debt. And if you could just so graciously show your mercy and forgive me of my sin and let me be part of your family, when you repent and you trust and demonstrate allegiance by faith in Jesus Christ based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, you know what Romans chapter 10, verse 9, 9 and 10 says? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, don't you just love these words? You will be saved forever. There's nothing that can take that, no one that can take that away. This servant pleaded with the master. Doesn't it remind you of the prodigal son? All of a sudden, this disposition of mercy from the king who would call his servants into account and this particular prodigal son would squander away his entire, his entire inheritance and he would finally get to the bottom of the barrel and he's eaten with the pigs and he finally comes to his own senses and he says, you know what, I'm gonna go back to my father. Now, could you imagine that long walk home, knowing the irrepayable debt he could never pay, he couldn't take, get the inheritance back, he had squandered it forever, and he finally comes out with invisible eye of the house where his father was, only to find his father, like just looking for him, just waiting for him. And he sees him walking up that road, and his father just runs to him. And he wraps his arms around him, and he says to him, welcome home, my son. Mercy is this disposition that keeps us there, waiting, looking, calling out, saying, come to the Father in heaven where your sins can be forgiven, where restoration is possible. Mercy is this compassionate spirit where you look out and you say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna retain the hope that I have in Jesus Christ for the saving of souls. Well, the parable takes a turn for the worst all of a sudden when we realize what's going on in the heart of this individual. And we see it starting in verse 28. It says, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Well, he's clearly expressing this reality of 
juxtaposing two great, two debts that would be owed. One, something that was irrepayable, and the servant of the servant only owed him one day's worth of work, one denarii. He said he only owed him 100 denarii, and one day's work would be about one. So even though it would have taken him a long time, he would have had to repay it, but he could have done it. And now he goes out, and he grabs the servant, and he starts to choke him, and he says, you're going to pay what you owe. You can only imagine, because I don't think that this whole story of his forgiveness before before the master was unknowable by the rest of the servants, And you can only imagine as he's being choked, he's probably thinking to himself, you were forgiven, you were forgiven. It's like, what are you doing? The story is developed in such a sense where it gets to this point and you almost have to say, what? What is he doing? How could he do that? Jesus designed the parable to almost have this sense of an audible gasp. What? Who does he think he is? treating his servant when he's been treated like this. The debt was large enough to be repayable, but still a very challenging component. The problem was, as you get down all the way to verse 31, when he put this man and he refused and he put him in prison, that he should pay the debt. And notice in verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. See, there's something about the rest of the story that all of a sudden when someone wasn't willing to be forgiving the way that they have been forgiven, that everyone within that servant community heard about what was going on and they took a righteous, just plea before the master and said, this cannot be right. You you forgave this and this is what he just did. And when that was heard by the master, the master comes to the servant And he says, you wicked servant. That idea is this morally debased, evil, unjustifiable action that he is describing. You wicked, you servant who is not morally good. This is not right based upon what you have been forgiven. There was a standard and you didn't follow it. Why wouldn't you show mercy? He says, you are are morally debased and evil in my sight. And then he says this to him. He says, why didn't you show mercy? Mercy should have been shown. The way, the the same kind of mercy that would have been shown to you. See, there's something about mercy that goes on in the Bible as we think about it that that we should be enamored with when we hear mercy and grace. And do you notice in the Bible often they, they tend to just go together? I mean, this mercy that he was wanting to allow a pardoning to take place and restoration to be had, even though a debt could not be paid, but the debt could be absorbed. It forces you and I with a question. It's Peter's question. How often shall my brother or sister sin against me and I should have to forgive him? And said in the boundaries and context of a parable like this, it's supposed to leave us with limitlessness. Mercy that should always be demonstrated. Why? Because mercy always has the opportunity to absorb offenses. So you might say, well, yeah, but they sinned against me a lot. Well, I say, well, 
you can absorb a lot. I mean, think about what the pardoning uh, displayed. Jesus understanding that there was an irrepayable debt from the sins of the entire world is willing to absorb the offenses of all of humanity by the blood and work of sacrifice of his own son on the cross. He absorbed your offense and my offense and every single offense so that when that person comes to him and asks for forgiveness, he can say, I paid for that with my own blood and I forgive you and your debt is paid. And it's not because you did it. It's because God was merciful through the work of his son. Forgiveness, here's another element of a motivation for why we should be forgiving people is because forgiveness puts God's mercy on display for all to see. We live in a culture where people just want to be merciless. Just let them have what's coming to them. But when these servants took to the master this perspective and, and the master comes and says, you wicked servants, why would you do this? Why would you not show mercy? Look at how much you've been forgiven. And now you won't forgive? Believers, we must be people who forgive. See, forgiveness is a way to display compassion. I think you should ask yourself, and I should ask myself, if other people describe you, would they describe you as a compassionate person filled with mercy? Husband, wife, as you live together, if you asked your spouse to describe who they knew who you were, would mercy and compassion be some of those things that they begin to describe about you? I hope it is. We need to be people because we have been forgiven, filled with a great compassion and mercy and willing at every turn on a limitless way to absorb offenses and, 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 and show mercy when people ask and, and we can grant forgiveness. You notice that the predicament of this whole entire parable culminates in this one statement towards the end. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all of his debt. I think this expresses this reality. Unforgiving Christians will stand responsible before the, the God of heaven, before a righteous judge, and they will have to give an account of every sense of merciless activity that they were unwilling to show compassion and pity on people and willing to absorb offenses. And Jesus is going to say, out of all I have forgiven you, you couldn't forgive them? We have a major responsibility in the body of Christ to be people who are filled with mercy the way mercy has been shown to us. But what is mercy? Mercy is this Old Testament language of loving kindness and compassion coupled with grace. Mercy is withholding a deserved outcome for the sake of that pity. I know that you, I deserve this, but could you just show mercy? I remember when our 
kids were younger and they would know that they had discipline because they had violated various components and there were moments where uh, we could demonstrate and show them and just put mercy on display even though they didn't deserve it but they needed to understand something about the sense of mercy. And we began teaching this and helping them understand that there's various components like this. And they would say, I just remember these little voices, Daddy, can you show grace? Can, can this be one of those times that you show grace? You hear that in those little voices and you think, your heart just melts. And there are moments in your life where we have these opportunities to put the mercy and grace of God on display. Mercy is withholding what you deserve. Grace is the undeserving, undeserved blessings, which is why they often go together. I don't get this, I'm shown mercy, and I get grace instead. I get all the undeserved blessings of the riches of Jesus Christ. At whose expense? The Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This act of grace is demonstrated and, and proclaimed all through the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one could boast. I think what this parable is trying to tell us is this. To know God's mercy is to show God's mercy. If you are a person who has been forgiven, how dare you not be a forgiving kind of person? However many a times someone who has sinned against you, there is a limitless capacity that you have to absorb offenses because what Jesus did for you pales in comparison to what you are gonna do for this brother or sister who has sinned against you. To know God's mercy is to show God's mercy. And if you don't wanna show God's mercy, then I'm not quite sure you know God's mercy. And that's the point of the parable. Be merciful. Here's why. Because Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was willing to pardon you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins with a debt so unrepayable that you had no possibility of repaying that. And Jesus stepped alongside you found, you, found you in your wickedness, and me in my wickedness. And he said, if you repent, you can have salvation in me. I will sacrifice myself for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 expresses this. Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's our, as we think about our elements of our definition, forgiveness is limitless. Forgiveness occurs when sin is present. Now here's our additional two for today's sermon as we build our definition. Whatever it finally ends up with, it better have these components. Limitless, it's dealing with sin offenses. There's pardoning that has to take place, which means an absorbing of an offense 
Why? For what motivation? So that the mercy of God could be displayed to all people who were involved in that circumstance. And so that God is glorified. We'll keep putting together this definition, but at least four parts. We've got at least four parts of our definition because as he puts it there, real sin needs guilt, needs offering and pardon because so many people will say, I'll just ask forgiveness even though I don't believe I've sinned. And then they're, what are they doing? If they're asking for forgiveness of something they don't believe they did and then they're doing it only to please another party, then what is that? People pleasing. That's just a lie. So that you can save face and say, can't we get beyond this? If real sin has occurred, real absorbing of an offense has to take place. And you and I can model that because judicially that's what Jesus did to set this up for us to help us understand it. As we look at our lives, this judicial forgiveness and this reality of this teaching go all the way, has to seep all the way into our perspective so that when we look at verses like all we like sheep have gone astray, that we take them to heart. If you're not a believer, your sins can be forgiven. Or this verse that he made him to be sin for us. Remember, judicial forgiveness is the model for relational forgiveness. Let me end with this. I would beg you, write this verse down of this particular story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 7. The story of the unnamed anointer where Jesus goes to the house of Simon the Pharisee. He sits and he eats with, her, with him. In the middle of the dinner, a woman breaks in who everybody knew in the community was this wicked sinner. And she comes with this ointment and she breaks it. And she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. And she wipes it with her hair. In verse 39, it says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus says these words to him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Which of them do you think will love him more? And of course, Simon says, well, the one I suppose who had, canceled, had the larger debt. And he said, you've judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? She, I entered your house, you gave me nothing to wash my feet. She wipes my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she had not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Believer, brothers and sisters, we were that woman. We were that woman who was filled with sin, who had no business being at the presence of Jesus' feet, who humbled herself, anointed the one who would die for, 
for her. And Jesus said these words to her, go, your sins are forgiven. And out of that mercy comes out of the heart this overwhelming understanding of love. If you are merciless to people, you don't love God and love people. But if you are filled with compassion and mercy, because you know what's been forgiven of your debt, you are filled with mercy and filled with love. Let's be those kind of people as the body of Christ so that God's mercy is on display and the Father is glorified in all that he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we were those people who had this insurmountable debt that could never be repaid, and you pardoned us. Lord, I pray that if there is one here this morning who has never been pardoned through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that they would recognize they could be set free if they just call out to him and admit that they are a sinner and ask for forgiveness and they confess their sin and that they could be saved this morning. People that we know, Lord, help us to reach out to them, to be ambassadors of this reconciliation that is provided so that mercy would be put on display Lord, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for your love and grace. In your name we pray, amen.